This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. For those who listen, for those who are willing to listen. The Palestinian political world has a story about us. But the foundation of the story is that we are dislodgeable. We are removable. We are of a type, and the type changes. Sometimes we're imperialists, sometimes we're colonialists, sometimes we're crusaders, in Hamas's more Islamic language. We are a thing that is, in, at its depth, at its core, artificial, and therefore not sustainable, and therefore doomed to fail, and therefore all uh, peace, all um, acceptance of Israel is a kind of collaboration. It is a, it is a violation of, of the basic faith that there is a just God overseeing a just arc to history, and so it is also an act of heresy. There are different discourses that have d- different ways of saying that and different extents, and some are secularized and some are much more religious, but nevertheless, that is the story of the Palestinians about us. Yes, I think if we can manage to deliver, and it still is an if, of course, but if we can manage to deliver in the amount of time remaining to us, that death blow to the Hamas political authority in Gaza. Again, not to the Hamas idea, not that's out there, you can't kill an idea, but that's okay. We're trying to destroy a political authority, and that is doable by military power, and there are examples of it in recent history. If we can do that, then yes, we certainly will have the Gulfies on our side in terms of what happens next. So I suspect that one way or another it'll be an arrangement including Gulf, Gulf finance, I suspect also including the Ramallah Palestinian Authority in some form or another, and I sincerely hope also including a local leadership. How exactly we'll get to that, what exactly we'll, we don't know yet, and I think nobody can, can say, but it all ultimately still does depend on us achieving the military goal against Hamas. How has October the 7th challenged Israelis' own conceptions of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Has the left anywhere left? What about day after planning? Has it seriously begun? And does peace lie with the Gulf states? Just how much do the Saudis and the UAE want Israel to win? Who in Palestinian society is someone Israel can actually deal peace with? Is there anyone? Is war from Lebanon inevitable? The Houthis, another Iranian proxy, bombing Western ships in the Suez Canal. How many fronts could this war open? And is the escalation so inevitable that Iran joins in directly? Russia in Syria, Iran's land bridge there. Why is it imperative that Israelis from both the North and the South return one day to their towns and their kibbutzim? Two of Israel's leading journalists and analysts on the Middle East join me here in London thanks to Elnet UK, a bipartisan cross-party international organization 
who stand above politics, working to advance UK-Israel relations. We go deeper into the Middle East conflict and through the hardship to try and find a route to a better day. Khaviv Retigor is a senior analyst for the Times of Israel. He's covered the politics, foreign policy, education and relationship Israel has with the Jewish diaspora for 20 years. And he served as director of communications for the Jewish agency and taught at the best pre-military academies in Israel. He was a correspondent at the Jerusalem Post. And Jonathan Spire is director of research at the Middle East Forum and edits the forum's journal, the Middle East Quarterly. He's reported from Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Turkey, Ukraine and back home, including in Gaza and Judea and Samaria. Jonathan wrote Days of the Fall, a reporter's journey in the Syria and Iraq wars. So let's have some level from the guys before we start. I am Chaviv Gur. I am from Israel. I work as a political journalist at the Times of Israel. Um, we publish in five languages, including Persian, Arabic, and French, on top of Hebrew and English. And I like to take long walks on the beach. I enjoy a nice margarita. I, I don't, actually. Um, we're just taking sound levels, right? That's, That's a great introduction to the podcast. Okay. It reminds me of the Pina Colada song by Rupert Holmes there. Getting caught in the rain. Okay. I was tired of my Jonathan. Yes. Who are you? Uh, well, I'm Jonathan Spire, and I'm a, a journalist and Middle East analyst of some years standing. I'm based in Jerusalem, uh, and I uh, cover large parts of the Middle East, but mainly have an interest in Syria and Iraq and Lebanon. Those are the countries that I'm especially uh, fascinated by and, and spend my time writing about and thinking about. Javier Retigur and Jonathan Spire, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State, the next stage of the Israel-Gaza war. We are 100 days plus into this war. Javier, can we talk first of all about where we think Israel is, the military successes and perhaps some of the problems that have been encountered that need tackling? If we're talking about the battlefield itself, the progress of the war in Gaza itself, um, leaving aside the vast numbers of the social question in Israel, the vast mobilization, the economic costs, the suffering of Gazans, the uh, you know there, there's a lot to talk about. But strictly on the strategic military level, uh, the war has gone uh, extraordinarily well. Uh, the army encountered less resistance than it thought it would. It encountered that resistance, but it was able to disrupt it in ways um, that really uh, showed, and incidentally, it has gotten better along the way. It has learned Hamas's tactics. Hamas tried multiple times to produce uh, company-level um, attacks against Israeli forces, uh, 50, 60 fighters. It had a lot of um, um, places where it had planned these kinds of engagements, uh, and it has failed. It has, that has been disrupted by Israeli forces. Um, the IDF estimates 50 dead Hamas combatants to every single Israeli uh, combatant dead. If we take that as a um, uh, aspiration, a little bit optimistic of a, uh, of a number, um, then even if it's half that, it's still 25 to 1. Um, and so the northern operation was relatively fast. Uh, Hamas's, uh, some of Hamas's central 
um, operational command had to flee to the south of Gaza, uh, and the north has now shifted from the ground operation, from the taking of the land, to the difficult tunnel war, the counterinsurgency, you can call it what you will. In the south, the um, effort to actually take the territory itself above ground is still underway. It's going to go slower, it's going to be more targeted, um, and uh, the forces there are fighting um, a much less, we'll call it, fewer airstrikes, much more focused on uh, gun battles in the streets. Um, but again, going well. The one major thing to know is that it will take a long, long time. It was always supposed to take a long time. Uh, Defense Minister Gallant said that, I think, in the first week of the war. So, successful. The fact that it has been that successful up until now, the enemy has been unable to produce strategic surprises, doesn't mean it won't be able to. It is in the nature of enemies to produce strategic surprises in the battlefield. But nevertheless, better than we could have hoped for, strictly on the military dimension. And of course, Jonathan, what is going to hold up and make this continuing battle harder is the prospect of attempting to rescue the hostages. And they are in awful conditions, depraved conditions. We're hearing stories from particularly women who've returned. We have a one-year-old baby there. God willing, he's still alive. They are using psychological weaponry to tell people that hostages are dead. We have no idea whether they are dead or not. So there is a, a vital subtext to the progress, the success, as Khabib said, of this of this war. Yes, well, absolutely. I think that the strategy which uh, Hamas, and which its leader in Gaza, uh, Sinwar, and the people around him are trying to use uh, transparently, uh, is that of trying to use the hostage issue to slow the advance uh, of the IDF, believing that uh, they'll be able to do that until such time as the diplomatic clock uh, permitted Israel will uh, will run out. That's clearly what they're trying to do, and it will be up to Israel to creatively uh, prevent them from doing so. I very much agree with what Khaviv, the, the characterization that Khaviv gave to the progress of the military uh, front so far. I have myself reported from both northern and southern Gaza and can report back, so to speak, that certainly the, the uh, impression I had of the feeling and morale among the, the fighting troops at the sharp end was uh, very positive indeed. I think people are hugely committed to the goal and to the mission. So yes, uh, in the southern Gaza specifically now, the issue of the hostages and the issue of the future survival or, as we hope, non-survival of the core Hamas leadership around Yahya Sinwar, let's say Sinwar himself, his brother Mohammed Sinwar, uh, Mohammed Daif, uh, Marwan Issa and a few others. This is now going to come onto the agenda and the 98th Airborne Division, the Airborne and Commando Formation, which is handling, a very large formation by the way now, which is handling the battle in the south, is going to have to start in the weeks ahead and months ahead grappling with those issues, how to get to the hostages without getting them killed, how to get to the Hamas leadership, you know, to know where they are, to find them, to eliminate them, and to begin to do what was done in a more straightforward way because of the different nature of the battlefield in the north, which is essentially to break the back of and dismantle the central nervous system of the Hamas political and military authority, which has controlled the Gaza Strip for the last 17 years. Because, Khaviv, Israel contained, tolerated barrages of rockets put the war off until the terrible pogrom of 710 and it's changed everything hamas must now be destroyed is the overriding consensus of 
almost the entire Israeli population. How do you think it's challenged Israel's conceptions of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Has it put back the day of peace? Or has it focused the Gulf world who are nominally on Israel's side, the UAE, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, etc.? There are many, many questions in that, in that question. Um, on October 7th, before October 7th, we believed that our massive power, fire, firepower, just literal firepower, um, deterred Hamas, deterred all our enemies. And we did not understand that Hamas is a unique enemy, never faced before by any military in the history of warfare. A lot, a lot of, excuse me, a lot of militaries have faced guerrilla forces um, that attack and then hide behind civilians, irresponsible forces, forces with a strategy of drawing a standing army into civilian territories to force civilian casualties on them as a force multiplier. A lot of armies have faced other armies, other states that control an economy and a territory for long periods and can construct, uh, can, can wield the entirety of an economy toward a war effort. No one has ever faced a guerrilla force with the irresponsibility of a guerrilla strategy that also controls and wields an entire territory, a population, an economy. And, and therefore Hamas has been able to dig in under Gaza to an extent that is unparalleled in the history of such, of such military conflicts. Uh, and has been able to do essentially to take our firepower and instead of our firepower deterring them, transform our own firepower into the very thing that deterred us. We thought they were deterred when in fact we were deterred. We could not imagine over the course of probably the last 12 or 13 years when the tunnel project has really been underway in a serious way, we could not imagine something that they would do to us that would force us to fight them in a way that would actually dislodge them from Gaza because fighting them in a way that would dislodge them from Gaza because of how they had built Gaza since taking it over in 2007, would involve cutting through the civilian population and causing enormous civilian harm. And then they committed October 7th. And so there are two horrific atrocities by Hamas. The first was what they did to us. But the second they, is the longer one, and the one that has a far greater toll in human lives. And that is what they did to Gaza which is to use guerrilla strategy with an entire polity, an entire area of this world with a population that it controlled and an economy that it ruled, and it did nothing with this economy except build this method of placing the, econ the, the, the entire population between it and in Israel. It was about to force to come after it. Where does that put us in terms of Israeli understanding of Palestinian politics and Israeli understanding of whether there is a peace available? The Israeli left, the part of Israeli society and Israeli politics that thinks that there is a two-state solution available, that there is on the other side in Palestinian politics a capacity to reciprocate an Israeli withdrawal with real peace. If there is such a capacity, a withdrawal becomes sensible. And if there isn't such a capacity... A withdrawal from the West Bank shrinks me down to nine miles wide in the middle, with Hamas taking over the highlands that overlook all my cities. It becomes untenable. It becomes literally impossible. And so that Israeli left that sought that outcome 
was basically politically shattered in the Second Intifada, when at the height of the peace process, this is certainly how Israelis experienced it, at the height of the peace process in the year 2000, 140 suicide bombings hit Israeli towns, Israeli cities. I remember the year 2000. I remember my neighbors uh, sending their kids to school on buses, city buses in Jerusalem, and putting each kid on a different bus so that if one blew up, they wouldn't lose all the kids. That shattered the Israeli left. The Israeli left hasn't won an election since. What happened on October 7th was that, first of all, we went farther down that. In other words, it's an extension of the lesson of the Second Intifada. They wouldn't just attack us from any territory we control. They would destroy their own people. They would rain on their own people a, a, a rain of fire as we have to, they, they would become something we must remove as a threat from our border, no matter the cost for, from our perspective. But then they made sure the cost for the Palestinians is absolutely immense. They have a long vision. They have a long religious ideology. And they don't mind how many Gazans die along the way. And so there isn't really anyone left on the Israeli left. The people who were attacked on October 7, those kibbutzim, they were some of the last vestiges of the left that still believed in the capacity of Palestinian politics to reciprocate. And so they're really, it is a decimation, it is a unification. By making us feel so tremendously vulnerable where we had once felt powerful, Hamas has convinced itself that it has done some tremendous win for Islam and for the Palestinian cause. But our vulnerability is the source of our unity and our strength. And what it has done is unify us with a grim determination never to allow them to do that again. How do I withdraw? Imagine that I'm a, an Israeli left-winger who still wants a two-state solution. I literally don't know how to do it, and nobody can explain to me how to do it. So I think that on a generational scale, I think I'm still optimistic. I'm optimistic because they are forcing Israel to do the hard job, the awful job, the job with immense costs to, to Palestinians, obviously, but also to Israel. But they're forcing us to do that job of removing them from the equation. That itself, at the other side of this horrific time, opens up possibilities that are not available as long as they're still in power. But for that, but for the generation that we're, have to, we're going to go through now, before that happens, there's there's simply no capacity to move toward any kind of peace that I that I can discern. Jonathan, of course, it doesn't just affect the Gazans on their side of the border; it affects the Israelis on the south and indeed the north of the border, because as it stands, the jihadists are winning one aspect of the battle, which is they are dictating where Jews should live in their sovereign state. And until such time as Jewish Israelis are allowed to return to Kibbutz Be'eri rebuilt, Kibbutz Nahal Oz, Ofakim and Sterot, and indeed the cities of the north, the jihadists can claim some sort of progress. It's very important, isn't it, that for food security as well as uh -huh. uh, the issues of Jews living wherever they must in the Gaza envelope, that, that um, peacetime security must return to a normalized Israel after the war. Well, absolutely, yes. Uh, with regard to the issue of the other front, you're mentioning the north, you know, it's worth remembering that, uh, at least in my estimation, Hamas and its Gaza enclave is one manifestation of a much broader manifestation that we've witnessed throughout the region over the last 10, 15, 20 years, which is the emergence of uh, 
political forces, which are also military forces, which are both irregular, which are both guerrilla and semi-regular. Hezbollah in Lebanon, of course, is a, a well-known example, additional example of the phenomenon. The Islamic State was an additional one. Jabhat al-Nusra and other forces in northern Syria are another example. So these, this experience of uh, Islamist forces that then become de facto governing forces and that then build a military model combining irregular and regular capacities is uh, a known phenomenon, which I think, uh, to my uh, estimation, at least compounds the massive strategic uh, intelligence analysis failure which brought October 7th to us, namely the notion which we were discussing earlier, which the Israeli, I'd say both the security establishment and the political leadership of Netanyahu uh, uh, subscribed to, which was the notion that we had both deterred this particular uh, manifestation of the phenomenon, Hamas in Gaza, and we had also, and this is really, I think, the, the cardinal failure, that we of, of imagination, ultimately, that we had uh, incentivized them. In other words, there was a belief that we had both deterred Hamas, and also Hamas had become softened by the experience of power. Hamas enjoyed being the ruling elite in the Gaza Strip. They enjoyed the Qatari dollars arriving every month, and therefore we brought them to a situation where they were now biddable, if I can put it that way. This was an enormous failure, of ultimately of imagination, an enormous failure of, of conceptual thinking, and we uh, paid the price for it. And all the mistakes that took place further down the food chain, so to speak, that made October 7th a possibility, I mean the operational failures and then the tactical failures, all of these derive ultimately from that failure in thinking, which then led to, to, to wrong decisions being taken further down the line. So yes, uh, we, it was a, a terrible, terrible uh, failure. Uh, it was not across the board. Many people who studied Islamist and jihadi movements were saying at the time, you're making a mistake. If you think these people have been turned into something soft and malleable, that's because you're failing to understand who they are and how they think. But those who were saying that were not listened to by the establishment, and we saw what has followed. Yes, absolutely. I, it is my estimation that now, uh, in the time of uh, response and retaliation to that, we have to look broadly, not only at Hamas in the south, but also at Hezbollah in the north. I said we have to draw the lessons of October 7th, not only vis-a-vis -vis Gaza, but elsewhere too. And to me, the cardinal central lesson is that the uh, notion of accepting the emergence of areas of de facto governance by Islamist and jihadi organizations on Israel's borders, and then taking a calculated risk in which we just try and have technological means of defense on the border to keep them out, this is not an acceptable risk. It is not an acceptable risk to our citizens, and it's not an acceptable risk to Israel's future. So that means destroying Hamas in Gaza. But it also means destroying the quasi-state in southern Lebanon, or if not destroying it, at least pushing it back far enough to, to, to the north in Lebanon, such that it can no longer constitute uh, a danger. And yes, you mentioned the population. I was up in the northern border just a couple of weeks ago. 86,000 people. Israelis have left their homes. And you mentioned food security. Sure. By the way, interesting little factoid I picked up there. That's where most of Israel's egg production comes from, up there in the north. So the fact that we've cleared out five kilometers south of the border means a significant food issue for Israel looking down the line. So sure, we need to get those people back into their productive capacity close to the border. And to do that, we have to address the problem of the quasi-state to the north of the border in a way that is to their satisfaction. 
However, they're just not going to come back to their homes in the north if they don't feel they can be safe. And that means very decisive action, I think, also in the north. And just lastly to say that, you know, these phenomena we are facing to, in South Lebanon and in Gaza, these reflect a broader regional problem. It's the same Iran-backed Islamist militias that have taken control in Iraq. It's the same Islamist uh, Iran-associated militias that have taken control of the capital and most of the coastline of Yemen. So right now, it's not only us. I think we need to see this in the dimension that it is the Western world and its allies in the Middle East, of whom we are one, who are facing a generational challenge right now. Uh, and it, is, it, it remains to be seen how we are going to, uh, to rise to that challenge if we're going to see it through. Indeed. Uh, Grant Shapps, the Defence Secretary, announced the end of the post-war settlement, what he called the pre-war settlement, which I thought was an extraordinary but very welcome, tragically, thing to say from a very high-ranking Western um, cabinet minister. It's the sort of thing that all of us as journalists know on the ground and have known for 10 years, and most people who feel like they're the canary in the coal mine, but for someone to announce that to the general public uh, was very important. What Jonathan said there, Chaviv, about dealing with the quasi-state in the north, that's 150,000 rockets that Israel is facing, which would put Israel's population inside bunkers underground. It could destroy Tel Aviv, Haifa, cause untold destruction but of course israel would preempt that by destroying beirut this 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 is the cataclysmic fear that many people have in trying to prosecute a war in the north i think that the basic problem is very obvious and a solution to it is not at all obvious the basic problem is what if they are not deterred by our firepower what if the capacity that we have to wreak destruction on, on Hezbollah and on anything Hezbollah is embedded in because we have no choice but to remove Hezbollah's capacity to destroy Tel Aviv and Haifa? What if that capacity has until now not deterred them but deterred us exactly on the Hamas model? Hamas is an indigenous Sunni Palestinian political entity. But the Hamas we saw on October 7th, the Nukba force and its capabilities, those are Iranian. Those are things it took from Iran. It had, the fighters had, had, had satellite photographs and, and, and plans and a careful understanding of the, of the, of the delicate nature of the Israeli sensors on, on that extremely clever multi-billion shekel fence. And that is a capability given to Hamas, not by Hamas itself. And so Hezbollah is, in that sense, a part of um, one of one of the key things that Hamas borrowed was the very strategy itself of crossing the border in that way, taking Jewish villages and towns in that way, and taking hostages and killing in that way. We know because Hezbollah has put out videos of it over the years that Hezbollah's Redwan force, which is an order of magnitude more powerful than the Nukba force of Hamas has been training to do exactly that in the north. In a sense, um, there are people who um, argue now that, in fact, uh, Hamas ruined the surprise because we are awake. We assume that all of the capabilities that Hezbollah has built, that Iran has built in through Hezbollah, for the sole purpose of using. None of those rockets are there not to be used, and therefore they are not deterred. And so the question you raise, 
is a profound one. This may become genuinely catastrophic for Israel, for Lebanon. We may have to settle this by essentially being the last one standing. Now, I don't mean the civilian populations. Nobody has, I think, the capacity to literally remove the civilian populations. But I do mean the infrastructures, and I do mean huge cost to civilians on the Israeli side and on the Lebanese side. My sense, and Jonathan's a bigger expert on this than me, is that Hezbollah was built by Iran not for one of these piecemeal proxy wars. Hamas declared war now outside of the schedule that Iran needed. Incidentally, Hamas didn't tell Iran. Hamas didn't even tell Hamas's own political leadership. Uh, it was part of the astonishing compartmentalization that allowed them to escape detection by the Israeli intelligence services. They actually, now we know they didn't escape detention, but detection, but the Israeli intelligence services literally didn't believe what they were seeing. But nevertheless, the compartmentalization helped that along. The fact that the political leadership wasn't leaking the things the, Isra the Israelis were expecting to see in such an event helped the Israelis think that that wasn't what was happening. Um, but that compartmentalization included the Iranians. And so the uh, Hamas was an independent actor in that sense. It did exactly what Iran hoped it would do. It did it with capabilities Iran gave it. It is part of that Iranian alliance, but it didn't do it on Iran's schedule. Hezbollah does work for Iran directly. Iran built Hezbollah not to hit Israel on its own, but to serve as a deterrence to Israel and as a second front in the event of an Israel-Iran war. Iran doesn't want Hezbollah destroyed because it doesn't want Hezbollah wasted for that future Iran-Israel war. And so Hezbollah has to be more careful, doesn't want to see a cataclysmic war come to Lebanon, not because it cares about Lebanese lives. We know that it, it has a larger, longer religious vision that accounts for and allows for not just the loss of civilians, but using the loss of civilians as a strategic force multiplier. So far, Hezbollah has done all kinds of things to try to avoid massive escalation. It's not at all clear that it can avoid massive escalation. If the Israelis themselves, Hezbollah has had to have this low level of conflict between the Israelis and itself to show that it is caring about Gaza, that it is part of the resistance uh, axis, as it calls it. If Israel, if one of those missiles goes astray, if Israel itself, uh, for reasons internal to Israel that we talked about before, right, Israel doesn't think they're deterred, therefore this is a problem that has to be solved. If Israel decides that it will treat the next missile attack as that escalation that triggers the war, that is the Kasus Beli, um, then Hezbollah has a real problem, and, and, and it's going to wreak on Lebanon a destruction that that is there's nothing to be said about it it is nothing but tragic and horrifying uh an israeli ground war against hezbollah in south lebanon will be far more costly to the israeli forces i have two brothers-in-law right now fighting in gaza um most israeli families have someone 360,000 reservists called up there's nobody who doesn't know somebody uh this is going to get very bad in the north and there's it's not clear how we avoid that this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person go to shopify.com system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com system and a war on that 
cataclysmic level, Jonathan, will engage the USS Gerald Ford, which is supposed to be a deterrent. It will engage, presumably, Iran directly, Britain, Yemen, the European Union. It, it is very difficult to see how this can be deterred unless Israel attempts to try to deal with Iran itself in a targeted way, which it's done in trying to disrupt the land bridge over Syria and also directly with political assassinations carried out both by the Israelis and the US. Yeah, first of all, with regard to the land bridge over Syria, uh, you know, we should be, be clear on this. For all the achievements, and there are undoubted achievements of what we used to, what we called the war between the wars, now we know which war it was between, right? Now the war has begun. But what we used to call the war between the wars was full of tactical boldness and tactical successes against Aleppo Airport, against the Al-Kiswa base. I could, uh, could, could give you, you know, uh, the list. But here's the thing. Actually, it didn't uh, deter and it didn't, did not uh, disrupt the land bridge because the land bridge is a reality. And we know the land bridge is a reality because even as we speak, uh, Iraqi Shia and other uh, Iran-associated, Iran-employed militia forces are moving across the land bridge. That is to say, we had many tactical achievements in the war between the wars. We are superior to the Iranians in most, uh, almost all conventional military forms, but their strategy uh, progressed even during that period. That's why Israel now, even as we, uh, in terms of the time we're now discussing, is hitting Iranian targets also in Syria, also in Abu Kamal on the Iraq-Syria border and elsewhere. It's testimony to the extent that the land bridge as a strategic project was not profoundly disturbed by the, the war between wars. Thus far, with regard to the land bridge that you mentioned, with regard to the broader issue of the, uh, the, the big conflict, the big war we're discussing, yeah, there are many, many places in, uh, pieces rather, uh, in motion right now. We've discussed Gaza and we've discussed a little bit uh, also uh, Lebanon, Hezbollah against Israel. Uh, on the Lebanese border. Let us not forget, especially sitting here in London, that there is a third front currently active of this war, of this very conflict, which is taking place uh, between the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea and across the Bab al-Mandir. And it is a process in which, once again, an Iran-associated uh, militia or you know, political entity slash militia slash political party, the Houthis or Ansar Allah, are seeking to disrupt global shipping and seeking to, to hit that Israeli targets also, but also uh, uh, global uh, commercial shipping uh, as a gesture of support or as a, uh, a tactic of support to the Hamas war effort in Gaza. So it's true that Iran did not, or it appears to be true that Iran did not want this October 7th to happen uh, at the precise moment, this attack to happen at the precise moment. But I think it's also true when we say that the Iranian response has been limited. Yeah, it has been limited. But we shouldn't also exaggerate that. There are some, these fronts are pretty hot indeed. 170 Hezbollah fighters are dead since October 7th. Uh, that speaks to a very active front. I was speaking to a senior Israeli officer in the Defense Ministry, and I was struck by the extent to which he was upbeat, at the, and justifiably so, I think, at the Israeli military performance in the north. Nasrallah didn't expect, you can be for sure, can be for sure, to lose 170 fighters for the achievement in his eyes of nine IDF uh, dead. 
Right? That's a very, very poor achievement from his bowler's point of view. He's hemorrhaging men right now. But what that tells us is this is a very active, volatile front where just a single move can put us into a whole different dimension. And the southern front is the same. Uh, it took a long while, I think, for that reason, for the Americans and the British as well, to hit back uh, at uh, the Houthis. So we're seeing that the Iranians are hitting back. Do we have to hit uh, Iran uh, itself? My own personal estimation is that if this thing does escalate, it's not going to remain only a war between proxies. The Iranians themselves, the Revolutionary Guards Corps, took responsibility for the launching of uh, two ballistic missiles at the north, northern Iraqi Kurdish capital of Erbil with four deaths, supposedly against the Mossad station. They said. So the Iranians, bit by bit, are already a little bit entering the fray. The Iranians, we think also, have hit at least one ship themselves heading towards India. Because we know the range where it happened, this was not fired from Yemen, it was fired from Iran itself as the ship was heading towards port in India. It was, if I'm not mistaken, a car uh, container uh, ship uh, linked to uh, an Israeli shipping magnet called Idan Ofel. So the Iranians, bit by bit, are already entering this. Yes, undoubtedly. If the major war, which I suspect is inevitable between the Iran-led regional alliance and Israel and its allies, uh, is happening now, and we don't know if this is the time yet, but if it is happening now, it won't only involve Iranian proxies against Israel and its allies, it will evolve around itself. We're still some steps away, of course, from that war definitely being on right now. We don't know if we're living through the opening uh, steps of it or not, but if it does come, it will involve Iran absolutely as a player. They won't get to just sit back and send their dogs of war, so to speak, against their enemies. Let me add to that um, the scenario you painted at the beginning, um, two questions ago, um, with you know, 50,000 missiles falling on Tel Aviv, that will be replicated in Tehran. In other words, as the Israelis lose what to lose, the scale for Iran of the damage will, will, will grow, and, and there'll be an interest in Israel for it to grow. So I uh, second um, absolutely everything that Jonathan said, and just to say um, there is a very uh, imaginable, dynamic, easy to, to, to game out. It is at some point, it will be more likely than not likely, in which this escalates very, very quickly, and each side has an interest in hitting faster and harder and escalating faster in order to either deter the other side or, you know, see it through to the end as quickly as possible to minimize the damage of the damaging war. So we are looking at a potential... Um, the Israelis can't allow these threats on their borders. That is going to escalate to a certain level. The Iranians don't want to lose the capacity to threaten Israel in those ways. That is going to escalate it further. Each side is going to make decisions. It is very easy to game out, as Jonathan said. Um, at some point, it's going to be a runaway, a, a runaway uh, escalation that nobody's going to be able to stop. And if either, and, it, and there's a little bit of game theory psychology here. If either side thinks it's going to happen anyway, they have the interest of escalating faster. And so it's it's going to be uh, something very dramatic, uh, also in in Iran. And we have to talk, gentlemen, as we have uh, dotted around the Middle East about Russia, who are in Syria, and they use Israel as a buffer so as not to take on Iran, the other competing imperial power in Syria. So there's a sort of de facto arrangement between Israel and Russia that allows Israel to attack Iranian positions. But if something goes wrong and an escalation gets out of control, then Russia is involved, isn't it? If its interests are directly assaulted, uh, gentlemen, Jonathan first, so, perhaps. Yeah, so first of all, regarding Russia, I mean, the way I would characterize 
Russia's role uh, in Syria is that it is, it is a strategic partner of Iran. In other words, if we think of, if we note the fact that the Assad regime, which was, of course, very much on the ropes just about a decade, a little less than a decade ago, has come through the civil war and the insurgency against it, that is equally down to Iranian capacities and Russian capacities. Capacities, by the way, which kind of complemented one another. Each one provided what the other one couldn't. The Iranians provided massive assistance on the ground in terms of ground fighters, and the Russians provided uh, material and also diplomatic support that uh, that uh, permanent security council seat they have, which of course is so useful in preventing effective international action against anybody they want to prevent it for. So they've complemented one another with regard to uh, Syria. And I would say since the Ukraine invasion of 2022, it's become clear that this relationship has deepened because, and it's now a little bit more of a reciprocal relationship because the Russians who became short of uh, armaments when they were dealing with this unexpected uh, Ukraine, unexpectedly determined Ukrainian resistance began to cast about for friends, and they found a friend in, in Tehran, and the Shahid 136 drones, which are good weapons against civilians, not so much against soldiers. The Russians don't mind that. They're happy to make war on civilians too, just like the Iranians are. These drones have proven very useful to be hurled in large numbers at Ukrainian cities, and the, uh, excuse me, the Iranians have been providing also uh, ammunition, and also rockets and missiles too. Uh, to uh, the Russians. They're even creating a drone factory, we're told, on Russian soil. So there is a close relationship here. And the Russians have themselves provided the S-300 air defense system to the Iranians. So Russian patronage and friendship for Iran is a big help for Iran and a big complicating factor for anybody who might be thinking of hitting at Iran at any stage. Having said all that, everything which I at least have managed to pick up from uh, sources and, and friends regarding the Russian stance on the current uh, conflict, from what I've been given to understand at least, the deconfliction arrangement that Israel has with Russia in Syria remains in place. And I've even heard that the Russians have been acting as a, uh, a, a persuasive factor to the Iranian side to hold back a little bit in the north. The Russians clearly don't want a major war to erupt out of Syria and Lebanon between their own partner, Iran, and their own what are we to them? A rival, I suppose, but not yet an enemy in terms of the Israeli-Russian relationship. So from what I've been able to gather, specifically to do with the north, northern front right now, the Russians are acting as a, uh, a, a factor which is trying a little bit to restrain the Iranians. But big strategic uh, picture, I would say, if the world is separating once again, and it may well be into blocks... Uh, it's very clear that, you know, of course, Israel is with the American bloc, and it's very clear that the Russians are the main strategic, or one of the main strategic partners and backers of the anti-Western forces in the region, notably Islamic Republic of Iran. Gentlemen, let's talk now about the day after the war in Gaza. And I've always been struck by Israeli diplomats who come back from Arab countries and say, you know what, they're... They talk about, yeah, but how much money can we make from this? Uh, you know, where are the, uh, you know, where, where's the carrot for this? Where is the incentive for us? Where our interests are served? And uh, obviously, when uh, Jewish people are talking about Israel, they're talking about a faith-based idea about Israel's survival, uh, of unity. Um, we think differently about Israel. Obviously, his interests must be served, uh, but they are based upon survival as well as prosperity. And so inviting the UAE and Saudi into rebuilding Gaza is a fantastic route to peace, is it not? Because we all know about Saudi Arabia. By the time 2030 comes along, they'll be hosting the World Cup. 
Newcastle United will be Premier League champions. They'll have taken over golf. They'll have built Neom. And uh, they'll allow women to drive more than 70 miles an hour. It's all good, isn't it, that Saudi and normalization with Israel will produce a rebuilt Gaza with a moderate Palestinian leadership, which they underwrite in exchange for all these things. Is that the route to peace? Wow. What do you think? That's my route. Are you asking my vote? Let's do it. Yeah, that's what yeah. I think. Was that, that, that that's. I've been doing a show on Talk TV called How to Make Peace in the Middle East. And that's it. <laughs> that's it. Let me poke a few holes. Okay, please. I don't want to poke any holes. I want that to be the future. Let me poke a few holes. Yes. <clears throat> People think in stories. The Palestinian political world has a story about us. And it has, the story has had many versions over many, many generations. But the foundation of the story is that we are dislodgeable. We are removable. We are of a type, and the type changes. Sometimes we're imperialists, sometimes we're colonialists, sometimes we're crusaders, in Hamas's more Islamic language. We are a thing that is, in, at its depth, at its core, artificial, and therefore not sustainable, and therefore doomed to fail, and therefore all uh, peace, all um, acceptance of Israel is a kind of collaboration. It is a, it is a violation of, of the basic faith that there is a just God overseeing a just arc to history, and so it is also an act of heresy. There are different discourses that have d different ways of saying that and different extents, and some are secularized and some are much more religious. But nevertheless, that is the story of the Palestinians about us. That is the Palestinian understanding uh, of, of the ideological elites of the Palestinians that run the factions of, Pal of, of Palestinian politics. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And therefore, <laughs> the idea that there is, in some simple sense, a moderate um, who can... Um, take uh, some money from the Saudis and Emiratis and because we have slightly cleared their way by taking out Hamas's regime in Gaza can now bring about the prosperity and happiness and joy that everyone hopes for isn't really what isn't really how Palestinian society works it isn't how the Middle East works it isn't how the story of Israel in the Sunni world as the Sunni world talks and the Shia world as they talk about Israel actually works um, there is no clear post-war moderate leadership. The leadership that tries to ride into Gaza on an Israeli tank will be delegitimized by virtue of it showing up on an Israeli tank. I'm referring also to the Palestinian Authority, which can barely run half of the Palestinian population centers of the West Bank. It has collapsed in many, many places in the West Bank and is sustained in the West Bank essentially by Israeli military power. And every Palestinian knows that, and that's why they're undermined and they're not supported. 
Um, the basic idea of getting rid of Israel has too much cachet, has too much, it's too aspirational, there's too much of a sense of, of deep religious longing for a return of a renewed Islam that can clear the path forward and, and give us not a compromised history, but in fact a history that is utterly redeemed from this terrible Jewish thing that happened to us. What the Saudis and Emiratis have been doing, not not in the Abraham Accords, but for 20 years, is attempting to push back against a political Islam, against a, a, a what we call Islamism, against a vision of Islamic renewal that has swept minorities out of the Middle East. Uh, Syria's population was 10% Christian 13 years ago, before the Civil War. It is today 2% Christian. What happened to the Christians of Syria, the ancient Christian community of Syria? The world doesn't notice, the world doesn't care, there were no marches in London for them. But in fact, they fled the Islamist war, and both sides were Islamist. The Sunni and the Shia of that civil war were profoundly radicalized political Islam. Um, and the minorities in the Middle East are, are it, it, there is an, it is not a tenable relationship between political Islam and any minority, including the Jews. And what the Saudis and Emiratis have been trying to do for 20 years is push back against that kind of political Islam. For the Saudis, it's a function of 9-11. They have been shutting down madrasas. They have been pushing a different way of thinking about the Muslim world. Long story short, for them, the Abraham Accords is about many different things all at once. There are many layers to it. One simple layer is that they are opposed, that were their arch enemy within the Muslim world for control of the Arab Muslim world for... for, for um, uh, power in the Arab Muslim world is Iran, and to push back against Iran, Israel is a very convenient ally. Unlike the United States, it can't leave the region. Unlike, but, but like the United States, it has immense power, it has immense projection power, it has high-tech high military and all of those other advantages. So Israel is a very convenient ally against Iran, but, is, but there is a piece to normalization with Israel that, it, that runs much deeper for them. The, the Emiratis and the Saudis would like to get over the obsession with Israel, the sense that the destruction of Israel is the beginning of Islamic renewal, that is itself a kind of, in their view, a kind of debasement and and um, uh, of Islam and and a statement of Islamic weakness rather than a call for Islam to return out of historic weakness into a position of power as an agent in history as a major force in history. So there's something deep happening here. They really, really want us to win. It wasn't that the Israelis went to the Saudis and Emiratis and said, please help us in the day after. The Emiratis and the Saudis have leaked themselves the offer to help in Gaza the day after, which is how Emiratis and Saudis say, please finish the job. Please push back against Sunni political Islam in the form of Hamas and clear that spot, give Iran one of its great losses in the region, have us able to stand up with you and fix and bring a better day, a better tomorrow, a better horizon for a population of Sunni Muslims that the Muslim world identifies with profoundly. Have us solve a problem that Iran helped create. We will be there to help clean up at the destruction of the war to create that better horizon as part of a broader battle for the soul of Islam in the Arab world. And so I, I, I think that there isn't in Palestinian politics a partner. We can't even imagine what it would look like. There's talk among some clever Israelis, and Israelis talking about this I don't think is as important as Palestinians talking about this, and Palestinians at the moment are not talking about this. But there is talk among Israelis 
uh, about um, there's a there's a, a deep civil society in Palestinian society, a kind of large clan system um, that could produce a, a, a local leadership not compromised by the ideologies and the external forces on Hamas and Fatah, etc., that may come into play and could, with the propping up of Saudi and Emirati money and support and Egyptian, I think, power, help become something new that we don't have now in Palestinian politics. So that's the that's the bad news. There is no Palestinian partner. The good news is. The Abraham Accord partners, they want us to win, and they and if we do win, perceptibly win, they want to triple down on the alliance. Because for them, it is about Iran. It's also about Islam and Islam's own renewal and a better future for the Muslim world as a whole. And so I am very optimistic. I am very pessimistic in the narrow confines of Palestinian politics, very optimistic in the regional sense. Optimistic? Yeah, no, I'd largely agree with that. I mean, a couple of points to just to add to the picture. I mean, with regard to the, the Gulf people, Mohammed bin Zayed, of course, and Crown Prince in United Arab Emirates and MBS, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, there's some additional, I think, uh, motivations to this. First of all, with regard to the United Arab Emirates, it's very notable, and I've noted this in my own conversations over the years with Emiratis, uh, that they have the same list of enemies as uh, as Israel, but they don't list them in the same order. Uh, of course, with Israel, as is well known, and correctly from Israel's point of view, the number one enemy is Iran, and the number two enemy or three enemy is Sunni political Islam, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Salafis, the ISIS. The Emiratis and MBZ specifically calibrate a little bit differently. As far as they are concerned, again and again and again this comes up in conversation, the main challenge is Sunni political Islam, and the main personification of that for them is the Muslim Brotherhood. They regard the Muslim Brotherhood correctly, again from their point of view, since they are themselves a Sunni Muslim country and therefore they have a domestic concern about potentially about the brotherhood that Israel doesn't have to consider. For them, the Muslim brothers were the main enemy. They successfully, and MBZ's historical role in this I think will eventually become clear, they successfully uh, turned back the advance of the Muslim brotherhood uh, in this region over the last decade. What we call the, what was called in, uh, wrongly the Arab Spring was in fact to a great extent, the advance of the Muslim Brothers in a number of different societies. And the Emiratis were deeply involved, it now appears, in the key historic moment in which that advance was stopped, which was the uh, military coup uh, in July uh, 2013 in Egypt. That was the moment at which the Brothers' advance stopped and their retreat began. So I think one of the motivations also to partner with Israel uh, is the sense of Israel being a powerful ally in that key struggle from the Emirati point of view, which of course means that, yeah, Hamas in Gaza can be a good uh, episode for us in that uh, uh, story uh, on condition that we win. We have to win conclusively and the Emiratis have to see that we have won conclusively and then everything else becomes possible. The commerce and the diplomacy and the rest of it is all, in any case, a little bit there and can be much more there on condition that we win. With regard to Mohammed bin Salman, let us not forget the issue is also economic. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, with his Vision 2030, uh, understands that Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has to, within a limited amount of time, move beyond a petrochemicals-based economy or go down. He doesn't have infinite time for that. He has to build a new Saudi Arabia capable of bringing in income, not dependent on petrochemicals. Uh, Israel can be an important part of that too. That's the way he sees it. So that's a big motivating factor for the Saudi Saudis as well. Yes, I think if we can manage to deliver and it still is an if, of course, but if we can manage to deliver in the amount of time remaining to us, that death blow to the Hamas political authority in Gaza. Again, not to the Hamas idea, not that's out there, you can't kill an idea, but that's okay. We're trying to destroy a political authority, and that is doable by military power, and there are examples of it in recent history. If we can do that, 
then yes, we certainly will have the Gulfies on our side in terms of what happens next. And I suspect that one way or another, it'll be an arrangement including Gulf, Gulf finance, I suspect also including the Ramallah Palestinian Authority in some form or another, and I sincerely hope also including uh, a local leadership. How exactly we'll get to that, what exactly we'll look like, we don't know yet, and I think nobody can, can say. But it all ultimately still does depend on us achieving the military goal against Hamas in the available time remaining to make all that other stuff possible. In my estimate. And just to add to that, also, um, let's talk about the West. Um, I've had conversations with certain anti-Israel thinkers, ideologues, uh, sometimes yelling at me. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my message to them is very simple. As long as Hamas runs politics in Palestine, as long as Hamas is the preeminent and most popular uh, and most influential political faction in the Palestinian uh, political space, um, then all of the pressure campaigns everywhere in the world, the people screaming in London to pressure Israel um, against me, are in fact, they don't realize it because they're profoundly ignorant, but they, they are in fact competing with Hamas. There is this arena that is inside the Israeli psyche, inside my head, and in that arena, the 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 international um, uh, left or or pro-Palestinian campaign uh, says to me, if you don't do what we want, which is, let's imagine that it's pull out of the West Bank. Many of them have other demands or pull out of Tel Aviv as well. But let's imagine that it's pull out of the West Bank. If you don't pull out of the West Bank, I'm going to scream at you, boycott you, ostracize you, sanction you. I'm go- I'm going to be very mean to you. And then Hamas says to me on the other side of that conversation that they're having in my head without realizing it. Anywhere you pull out of, I'm going to murder your children from that place. So, you know, please pull out. I, I really am going to need this space. I, it's hard to murder your children from Gaza if you live, uh, you know, in Tel Aviv. Um, and, and they don't understand that they're competing with each other. And so I'm, I'm saying this cartoonishly, but I think that it is actually not a cartoonish point. Um, if Hamas is out of the picture, huge opportunities open up with the Emiratis, with the Saudis, exactly as Jonathan said very, very uh, well for their interests, for our interests, but also for a, a larger sort of deeper culture war for what Islam is today, political Islam especially. But also the international community can then come to Israel. If there isn't this thing called Hamas in Gaza, if there isn't, the, the, the blockade begins in 2007 with Hamas's takeover. It doesn't begin in 2005 with Israel's withdrawal. If there isn't Hamas in Gaza, what excuse is my blockade? If there isn't Hamas as the preeminent impulse, a narrative in Palestinian politics, what excuses some significant portion of the military rule in the West Bank or, or, or of the things that limit Palestinian lives in the West Bank? And so it is shocking to me that the campaign against Israel right now doesn't realize this. I mean, it's not shocking to me because I don't think it's really about the well-being of Palestinians or they would be an anti-Hamas campaign. But they're literally competing with Hamas in my head for what I should do. And so there is nothing that the international community can do for Palestinians that Hamas will not undo. And so we are doing a great service to the international community. And I desperately wish it was a lower civilian death toll. I don't get to decide that. Hamas gets to decide that. You want to come to me and talk to me about a specific bomb? I'm happy to complain about my army. I, do, I don't think Israel's perfect in anything. It's a country. I don't think America's perfect. I, I apologize. I'm in London being uh, hosted by wonderful uh, British people, but I don't even think <laughs> the UK is perfect. What? But nevertheless, nevertheless, I will, I will, by removing Hamas, clear a path for that international discourse to actually influence me for the first time in many, many years. And so on every front, 
that you could imagine a better future for Palestinians, as we are told to think of what a better future looks like for Palestinians, this has to be accomplished and this has to be completed. I've done 128 episodes of Johnny Gould's Jewish State, and that was one of the highest level discussions I think I've ever had. I learn so much on this odyssey, and I've added meat to the bone of everything I understand. Chaviv Retigur, Jonathan Spire, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you thank so you much. much. Fantastic, thank you. Well, who's better? <laughs> I'm going to stop the take now and say... You don't. <laughs> and say... There's a lot of competing attention for you, I do know. You're probably consuming more media than ever before to be right up to speed with what's going on in Israel and back home. I'm playing my part in the best way I can, using my journalistic and production skills to make the case for Israel via this Johnny Gould's Jewish State, and I've done it since 2018. If you enjoy my podcast, and you'd rather it existed than not, that I kept doing it, you can support me very simply by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Johnny Gould because it really helps. Tell your friends, subscribe now if you haven't already, scroll back and look through the 120 previous episodes. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>